This sermon was preached by Bob G. and Sarah, head pastor of Grace and Truth in Hartsdale, New York. Grace and Truth was planted in 2002 and is seeking to reach North Yonkers and Westchester County. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gntchurch.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Lord's Day this morning. I would ask you all to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. At this point, the children are dismissed to children's school. Again, the book of Genesis chapter 16. Before I begin, I actually wanted to share a tragic story that I heard on the news this week. It was about a 15-year-old girl from Canada. Her name is Amanda Todd. And it was a a pretty um, chilling story of how cyberbullying could go really wrong. Um, A few weeks ago, this young girl released a video on YouTube it was a silent video. Her face was blurred out, and all, no talking, no music. And she just kept passing cards that explained her situation. It was a story of a young woman who made some bad decisions, and those decisions quickly flurried out of control and led to a heap of consequences and um, led her to a, a really deep problem. It started off when she started going on the computer to do some online video chatting. And before she knew it, there were guys who actually were interested in her. She was a quiet girl in school. And after making some friends on video chatting on the Internet, uh, one guy had asked her at some point, after many compliments and people just, guys just telling her how beautiful it was, one guy asked her if she would flash herself to him on the cam, the webcam. Well, lo and behold, that man took a picture of her, and um, she thought nothing of it. She didn't know what happened, but a few weeks later, she got an email from this guy with the picture and says, I want you to show me a lot more of yourself on the webcam, and if you don't, I'm going to send this picture to everybody you know. I know your address, I know your school, and I know all the emails of every friend on your Facebook and in your email account. Well, the girl was horrified and terrified. This was called something which is new. It's called sextortion. So this young girl, afraid, didn't do anything. She said, I'm not going to show myself. I'll make a long story short. The guy did decimate that topless photo of her to everyone, her parents, her family members, every one of her classmates, uh, her principal, and all of her teachers It got out and went viral everywhere. The girl was utterly devastated and humiliated. As you can imagine, a 15-year-old child doesn't have the psychological capacity to deal with such humiliation at that age. Well, you would think that her peers would have compassion and would have been sympathetic, but no, instead it turned into a bullying rampage. As she went to school... Um, the teasing, the, the picking on, the making fun of, the insults, the, 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 
she became the laughing stock of the school and she couldn't go nowhere without being called uh, hideous names and, and she had no friends and, and it became such a horror in her life that she had to eventually switch schools and start a whole new life somewhere else. Well, she goes there and eventually the pictures follow her there and she can't escape the nightmare that was caused by one bad decision. After getting entangled in a relationship with a guy who lied that he didn't have a girlfriend, this guy's girlfriend came with a posse of ten other girls to the school one day and beat the living daylights out of her. In fact, at one point, one the boy himself kicked her right in the face while all the other students cheered and said, Get her, get her, get her. Well, after all of this humiliation and after all this pain and suffering, she made this YouTube video, and the last card she displayed at the end of the YouTube video is, I'm alone. Will somebody be my friend? It got the attention of the Prime Minister of, uh, of, of, the British, of British Columbia and Canada, and they quickly moved to take some actions for cyberbullying and bullying in the schools, but the problem was, it was too late. Amanda Todd killed herself. I nearly cried as I watched this, read this story on the internet because I have two little girls who one day will be teenagers and there are many of you here who have young daughters. And we all know that we make, can make bad decisions in life that reap horrible consequences. And we live in a world today where the computer opens up a whole new world of danger, of cyberbullying that I never knew as a kid. If I was bullied as a kid, it was, you know, it was very isolated local incident. But now your whole life could be destroyed on the Internet. Our kids are up against a lot. But I bring this story out to show the story of a young girl who was a victim of a heartless and cold pedophile perpetrator who destroyed her life for a cheap thrill. Clearly, her peers demonstrated a heartless, non-sympathetic approach. And even after she died, her Facebook account is still riddled with insults, people saying, good, she deserved to die, let her hang. And while this is a very radical example of how a few bad choices could go terribly wrong, it's a story that we all could relate to, to some degree. Maybe not to this extent. We all at one time or another have made some pretty bad decisions in our lives. I know I have. And some bring deeper consequences with them than others. And we all have experienced to some degree what it is to be oppressed, to be insulted, to be an outcast, to be rejected, to be humiliated, to be wrong, to be laughed at. I know I have. The sad part of the story that I said of Amanda Todd is that she never got the chance to know the love of Christ in her life. The final card she flashed was, I'm all alone. Do I have any friends? If only she knew, if only someone would have taught her the love of Christ. Today, we're going to look at a story that centers around another young girl, another young woman who was a victim of circumstances, and a story of an insignificant person who all of a sudden becomes very significant, and God demonstrates his love for this outcast, for this rejected woman. And it's a reminder to everyone here, because it's a, it's a story how... how one person gets tangled up in the bad decisions of others and suffers 
uh, a misery, and, and, and in spite of everything, we learn about God's triumph in her life and in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And that is the story of Hagar. Let me direct your attention to Genesis 16, verse 1. And let's read. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, there I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, because it it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this privilege and honor to come to your word. I pray, O Lord, that you'd open our hearts and minds and souls to behold wondrous things in your law. Teach us, Holy Spirit, instruct us in your ways and in your precepts. I pray that you convict, rebuke, exhort, comfort. O Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us according to your word, that we may have a greater comprehension of your person, of your love, of your grace, of your goodness, of your justice, and that we may... I love you with a greater love and a greater obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. We start here what is the unfolding of another drama within the household of Abraham that would be the plot and the making of a good lifetime chick flick. And it is anything but a God-glorifying story. In these verses, we see the covenant family that God has blessed losing faith in God and taking matters once again into their own hands. The problem which drives this entire narrative is spelled out very clearly in verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Uh, This is the problem. This is what the thrust is. This is what's going on. They had already been 10 years in the land of Canaan since God called them. They had already been there 10 years since God made the promise. 
Abraham's 85 years old. She's 75. Clearly she is well into menopause at this point in her life. She's unable to bear children. The question is, how and when is God going to fulfill this promise of giving them a child? We already saw Abraham's own complaint to faith previously in chapter 15 when God promises him that he will indeed have a child by his own loins. He in faith questions, but how could this be? Yet God insists that he will indeed have a child. And while God had assured Abraham of his faith, we are looking in chapter 16 today at things from a totally different perspective. We are seeing things from a woman's perspective. And for the first time in Genesis, we're getting a deeper look into the character and person of Sarah. And so, we have to understand here, there's a lot going on in Sarah's life and in her mind, and we have to understand the context and culture she lives in, and what it meant for her uh, to be in this situation. You see, in the ancient culture, and in the context of, of, of this region, in the Mideast, in, in this period of history, it was a badge of honor... And it was expected that a woman bear children for her husband. In fact, it was the prime expectation of a wife. If you were good for anything, it was to bear children, bear many children, many seed for your husband, to for his name, and to form a tribe, and to, to have a great name. And if you could not bear children to your hus- for your husband, it was an embarrassment, it was a shame, it was a, a, it was a badge of dishonor in the ancient context, if you were a woman and could not have children. So much so that women who could not bear children to their husbands would eventually be divorced or discarded in a general context. A husband may say, if my wife bears me no children, then I must marry a second wife, maybe. And so polygamy and bigamy is very common in the ancient world because having children is the main goal. I mean, we're very close to creation, and so the concept of be fruitful and multiply is very real in the mind of the ancient world. And so here we have Sarah, who's this woman who could not give Abraham any children. She's 76 years old. The fear is settling in. Will Abraham divorce me? Will he discard me? Will he look for another woman? Uh, Will he marry another woman and will I be second best in the household? All these fears, as you could imagine, are running through her head. Knowing this, Sarah's patience are certainly growing thin. And in some ways, she is fearful of being forgotten along the way. In fact, she says something very interesting here. We see um, in verse 2 as she approaches her husband, she says, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing a child. Here is Sarah. She is a heartbroken woman. She, She has given up hope. She's given up a sense of, will God really come through? She's lost her patience, and she's probably thought it's never going to happen. And in fact as she's spiraling down this path of faithlessness, what notice the, the charge she makes. God has prevented me. In a way, she's right. In God's sovereignty, I mean, we know God gives life and, and God opens the womb and God could close the womb. And clearly, uh, she's recognizing the sovereignty of God here. But I do not think that she's recognizing the sovereignty of God with an acquiescent faith that trusts in God's plan and will. But rather, it's the tone of a woman who has lost hope in God and was looking for a secondary plan. How many times has it been in your life 
where your patience has grown thin, where you feel like your back is against the wall, where you feel like, you know what, God's not coming through for me. I've been hoping and waiting and trusting for God to come through, but I don't see anything happen. And you're tempted to act out on your own and to do something according to your own ideas. How many of you have been there? I know I have. And so here she is. She's, she's, her patience is running out and she's losing faith in God. And so it's on the heels of this situation that Sarah has a plan B. You know, Sarah has a plan B. Well, if God's plan doesn't work, I'm going to come up with my own plan. And so she presents this plan to Abraham and she says, uh, uh, here I am going to my servant that it may be that I shall obtain children by her. All right, this is her plan. Go into my servant Hagar that I may obtain children by her. And so what we see here, it's a very simple plan. She had an Egyptian maidservant who was introduced to us early in the chapter. Her name is Hagar. Uh, evidently, she is a young woman. She's fertile. Uh, um, and she could bear children to Abraham. And so here is her reasoning here. She's thinking, rather than Abraham divorce me or give me up, and rather than have to compete with a second wife in the family, I'm going to offer him my maidservant as a surrogate mother, and that through her I may give Abraham a child. Now first, you hear this and it sounds very scandalous, right? But, but remember, this is, a lo- this is 3,000 years ago, and in the cultural framework and context of the Mesopotamian region, the Middle East, it was actually quite common for families uh, of wealth and of notoriety that they would offer their maidservants as surrogate mothers to their husbands if they couldn't bear children. Actually, the plan that Sarah is offering to Abraham is conventional wisdom. It's actually a law written in it and about it in Hammurabi's Code. And so what she's offering and presenting to Abraham is not scandalous at all. It's actually a clever plan that's conventional wisdom of the day to hopefully avert and avoid any kind of displacement or rejection by Abraham. And so she offers Hagar to him and that through her she may have a child through a surrogate mother. Sounds like a good plan, right? The problem was this. Although her idea and her plan was acceptable according to the standards of her day, it wasn't part of God's plan. It wasn't acceptable according to His standards. You see, there are many things that that we may try to apply in our life, use conventional wisdom. There are many plans or, or, or there are many things that we may say, well, this, this is acceptable in our culture. Everyone's doing it, but that don't mean it's right. You know, my wife and I were having a discussion one day, and you know, she made a very good point to me. How, you know, how a lot of young girls uh, are, are growing up and they think abortion is okay. Why? Well, because everybody's doing it and it's legal. And so we simply accept the fact that it's, it's a lawful thing in our country and most people are doing it. Therefore, it must be right. It's conventional. It's, it's standard customary wisdom. Wrong. God says it's not. And so we don't necessarily do what the rest of society does. We do what God says. And so this was the first failure that she made, is that she's using worldly wisdom to accomplish the means of God's plan and purpose. And so what happens? Abraham listens to the voice of his wife and accepts the plan without even considering God, without praying, without having a discussion. All right, let's do it. He listens to the voice of his wife, it says in verse 2. And so after Abraham, verse 3, had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. 
And so here the plan seems to be unfolding pretty good at this point, right? But actually, things go pretty wrong. This is not part of God's plan. In fact, not only is Sarah acting uh, uh, in the flesh, not only has she lost faith in God, but she's actually leading Abraham down the path of sin and away from God's plan. Uh, It's actually a parallel here to Eden. There's a strong parallel here between Abraham and Sarah and Adam and Eve. Right? What do we read about in, in the book of Genesis in chapter 3 at the fall? It says that, that Eve took the fruit, she gave some to her husband, and the husband ate the fruit. Here we read, Sarah took Hagar, she gave Hagar to Abraham, and Abraham received. In Genesis 3 it says, Adam listened to the voice of his wife. Here, Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. We actually have a repeat of the fall of the garden in the covenantal family. And in the Hebrew, it's even more explicit because the, the, the language is identical to that in Genesis 3 of the fall. Here's this guy, Abraham, who, who, who conquered the, the five kings of Mesopotamia, who, who had formed an alliance uh, 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 with Mamre, who, who had demonstrated great faith and had just received great blessings by God and had been justified and declared righteous. And all of a sudden, shortly after God had done all this for Abraham, what does he do? He takes a huge fall. It wasn't by the sword of a military general. It wasn't, it wasn't by a great temptation by a seductress. It wasn't by a fit of anger. It was by the temptation that came from his own wife to distrust God and to do it their own way. It's amazing. As husbands, God calls us to be the leaders of our home And how easily in a moment of weakness we could capitulate when our wives ask us to do something that we know is not right. Well, the outcome, things do not go as planned. And actually, it blows up in Sarah's face. Because we read here in the second part of verse 4, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Hagar conceives immediately. Lest any of you think that this plan is going to go without a hitch, and that Abraham and Sarah were going to get away with this, you are wrong, and they're wrong. You see, there's a principle here. Whenever you act outside of God's will, and whenever you act in the flesh, there will always be unintended consequences. To our actions. Well, let's get the picture. What's going on here? Uh, Hagar conceives, and she looks at Sarah with contempt. What, what does this mean? Well, the word here, or the Hebrew that says she looked at her with contempt, it, it means that she looked down on Sarah. It means that she despised her, or that she she looked at her with a sense of "I am better than you." What she did was, it wasn't just a one-time look that she gave Sarah. This was a disposition, an attitude that she was showing to Sarah over a long period of time. Essentially, what had happened, and put yourself in the scenario, here I am, I'm a slave, I'm a nobody, and all of a sudden now, I am bearing the child of Abraham. And you, Sarah? (laughs) 
you failed. You could only imagine how this went to her pride and ego, and she is real. I mean, think of the implications of this. She's bearing Abraham's child. God promised that all the blessings of, of eternity are going to come upon Abraham's seed. You don't think that in her mind she's thinking already that she's going to displace Sarah? Of course. It's logic. It's common sense. Abraham sees she's fertile. She's going to be the girl that Abraham's going to go into the tent with, not Sarah. But Sarah suddenly realizes the drastic consequences of her decision. She realizes that no longer is Hagar her friend, but her competitor. No longer is Hagar the, the, the maid servant who serves her, but may very well displace her, and Sarah may wind up being the maid servant. And so Sarah is twice scorned. They say, there's an old saying in proverb, hell hath no fury for a woman who's scorned. Well, Sarah is twice scorned. Now it comes back to Abraham. Put yourselves, guys, in Abraham's shoes at this point. And it looks here in verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong that's done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and she saw what she had conceived, and she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. Oh boy. (laughs) She is angry. She is infuriated. It is one thing to be humiliated her whole life for being buried, but it's another thing to be humiliated by her maidservant. It was way too much, and she's gone to Abraham, and what does she do? She blames Abraham. First she blamed God earlier for her predicament on her course of acting in the flesh. Now she's going to blame the whole situation on on Abraham and put the whole thing on him and even call God to judge him. Well, sadly, this is what always happens when we don't live in faith. We make bad decisions and when things don't go our way, we always want to look to blame God and others. I've seen it so many times. As a pastor, I can genuinely tell you that 90% of the trials and problems that people have come to me with over the years are self-generated. Very rarely I see people that come to me with problems that, that, that they're just a victim. 90% of the time, the problems we create are self-generated because of bad decisions, of acting in the flesh, of acting in sin, of acting apart from God. And, and the immediate response when we're in that predicament is we want to either blame God for putting us there and not stopping us, or blame someone else. This person destroyed or this person did it to me. And the truth is we have no one to blame but ourselves. Now, while it is true in a sense that Sarah is the one who hatched this whole plot, Abraham is responsible as well. Abraham is not an innocent guy here. Uh, He knows the plan of God. God has spoken to him personally, not to Sarah. God had had given his revealed will, uh, the covenant. I I mean, Abraham should have had enough faith and enough wisdom and enough confidence to say, no, Sarah, God will provide We just have to trust in Him. But He capitulated. And so in a sense, He is guilty for letting the whole thing go down and not being the man of the home, not being the leader and and taking a stand for righteousness. R. Kent Hughes comments this, 
Abraham and Sarah had treated Hagar like an inanimate, unfeeling instrument, a soulless baby machine. You see, the only victim here was Hagar. Sarah was guilty. She was wrong. Abraham was guilty and wrong. Just the fact of the way the the language is used, she took her and gave her to Abraham, clearly treating Hagar like an object, like a tool, and not like a human being. This This was below the standards of the covenant family of God who were to bear the renewed image of God in society. And so how does Abraham respond? Well, he he essentially washes his hands. He says, listen, she's your servant. Do whatever you think is right. Do what pleases yourself. Now, there's two things going on here. One is that Abraham, in one sense, is affirming Sarah's position. She is clearly, and with, with good reason, intimidated and concerned that her position as Abraham's wife is under threat. But Abraham, in one sense, is affirming his love and his commitment to Sarah by saying, listen, you're my wife. You're still going to be the matron of the home. She's a maidservant. You deal with her as you see fit. But in another sense, he's avoiding responsibility to do the right thing. He should have dealt with it in a manner of grace. But as usual, sin begets sin. Whenever you go down the path of, a, of, of bad decisions, of, of living in the flesh and outside of faith, it always cascades into worse decisions. Sin always begets sin. Remember the story of David? I mean, with Bathsheba, I mean, who could forget how it just spirals down the tubes? It just goes from bad to worse, the situation. First, he, he sees Bathsheba and has an affair with her. Then he tries to, to plot and lie and sneak and try to fool Uriah into thinking that he got her pregnant. When that didn't work, he kills Uriah. When that doesn't work, he tries to cover up the whole thing. I mean, it was just one big mess. And that's how sin usually goes. It just spirals down until it's one big mess. And so what happens? Sarah takes matters into her hands. And the the term says she dealt harshly with Hagar. And the word there in Hebrew uh, means oppress. It means to mistreat. It means to abuse It means that basically she made Hagar's life miserable. Some of you have jobs where you know if you do something to get your boss upset, you may not lose your job, but your boss knows how to make your life miserable, right? They will make you want to quit your job. Well, that is precisely what is happening here. Sarah says, okay, I can't get rid of her, but I am going to make her life. I'm going to show her who's boss around here. And she'll know it. And so Hagar, with no other option, runs away. What a mess. The irony here is the same word in Hebrew here that says Sarah uh, dealt harshly or mistreated the Egyptian woman would be reversed in the future. It would be the Egyptians, and the same word in Hebrew, who would mistreat and who would abuse and oppress the Israelites. You know, this was clearly not the way the covenant family of God was to behave. Abraham was called to be the conduit of blessings to the nations. Yes, 
Hagar is an Egyptian. Yes, she is a descendant of Ham. She's not the descendant of Shem. She doesn't have the blessing on her. But it's Abraham and his Sarah who are unique and have been set apart by God to be a blessing. And clearly this was not the way they should have been treating Hagar or anyone in their entourage. They had clearly sinned. They had clearly fallen away. And I think there's an application because sometimes we as Christians mistreat unbelievers. There are times we as Christians mistreat or abuse or or look down or have contempt upon those who are not part of the new covenant. And if you're honest with yourself, at one point in your life or another, you have mistreated, you have dealt harshly with someone who's an unbeliever because after all, they're pagans. We're the people of God. And the truth of the matter is, is that we are to show grace and mercy even to those who are not saved, to our enemies, Jesus said. The parable of the Good Samaritan makes such a good illustration. The Levites, the priests, all walk by the Samaritan on the road because he's a filthy Samaritan. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry, there was a person who was unclean, but it was the Samaritan, the filthy Samaritan who came by and saw the man who was beaten and robbed, and he was the one who looked out and helped him. And Christ says, that's what it is to love your neighbor. Everybody's our neighbor. We are to show the love of Christ to all men, to all women. And it's through that love we win them to Christ. We don't mistreat or abuse anyone. In fact, later down the road, when God would save Israel and bring them into Canaan uh, with Moses, He would instruct them very clearly in the law that they were to treat the foreigner and alien among them well. Because you yourselves were once aliens and foreigners in the land of Egypt. And so there's a principle here, divine principle, that is violated uh, by the covenant family. Instead of being a blessing to others, they are using others as tools to accomplish their own goals. They're outside of God's will. And as a result, they bring abuse and oppression on others. God forbid may it never be spoken of the church. But sadly, many times it is. You know, it's amazing because sometimes the views of unbelievers would surprise you to think of how they look at us. They see us as arrogant. They see us as elitist. They see us that we think we're better than them. Remember, we are not better than anyone. We are just forgiven. It's up to us to show unbelievers the path to Jesus Christ that they too may know the forgiveness of God. Amen? Well, there's a couple of lessons to be learned here. There are times in life when we're going to be impatient and we're going to want to rush God's plan. It's those times in our lives when our patience grows thin wherever we must trust in God. Maybe you're single and you're just waiting, God, when is that person going to come into my life? When, is, when are they going to, uh, 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 you're going to give me the right person? It, be patient, wait, do not rush, do not rush into a relationship thinking your time is running out. So many people do that and they mess up their lives. You know, if you have a loved one or a family member who's not saved, stop trying to rush God's plan. Sometimes we try to arm twist our loved ones into the kingdom of heaven and we do we chase them from the kingdom of heaven. You know, we have to be patient. We have to wait on God. Uh, maybe it's not God's plan to move in our it would be sixteen years later before Sarah would give birth. God wanted to, to really prune them and teach them. You know, God operates on different timetables than we do. We have to be patient and wait. 
Whenever we act independently from God, we have to be prepared to deal with the consequences that goes along with it. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 6, 7 through 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. You know, there's a twist of irony here, too, with reaping and sowing. Remember back in chapter 12, Abraham's first lack of faith? What happened? He, there was a famine in the land. What did he do? He went down to Egypt, right? Remember the whole episode where Sarah is taken by Pharaoh into the harem and, and God delivers? But, you know, look, look at this twist of irony. Abraham went there on a lack of faith. And as a result of, of what happened with Sarah, remember, Pharaoh gave him a lot of wealth. He gave him camels and donkeys. And, and he gave him female slaves and male slaves. Where did Hagar come from? Hagar came into the picture because of the first bed. Had Abraham never even went to Egypt, Hagar wouldn't even been in the picture. The whole irony and twist is here is that this all comes as a result of disobedience and lack of faith. And so they ruin their own lives. They bring horrible consequences into their lives. Their actions and their consequence of action would last them years. Yes, God loves them. He, remember last week we learned in the covenant, God's never going to give up, Right? Remember, he walked through the pieces. He says, may it, be, you know, may it be done to me as these animals were killed if I don't keep my covenant to you, Abraham. God's not going to renege on his covenant. Yeah, Abraham and Sarah messed up. God knew they were going to mess up. God didn't, didn't make a covenant with them only if they do good. He knew they were going to mess up. And that's why he made the covenant because we have to rest on God's faithfulness and commitment to us, not us. We will mess up. We will break the covenant. And because of that, we would fail if it was left up to us. As I was praying, coming to church, I was thinking to myself, if salvation was left up to me, I would have been lost a long time ago. God's not going to waver in his commitment to Abraham and Sarah. But they will suffer the consequences for their actions, and God will not alleviate that. They will have to now deal with the consequences of this for many, many years and have division in their home. But God still loves them. And I think that this is set up right after chapter 15, just for that very reason, to show that, yes, after the highlight of chapter 15, there's a great fall, but it also shows that God still loves them and is committed to them. All right, now let's get to the second part of this, Hagar's redemption. So she runs away. Verse 7, we read, And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore, which is another word for Egypt. So Hagar is on her way back to Egypt. She's running away. She's going back where she came from hoping that maybe life would be better there. What happens in the next few verses is absolutely incredible. Here we have this slave woman, a descendant of Ham, an outcast, an abused surrogate, homeless, on the run. And God finds her. And God reveals himself to her in a mighty way. And we read about this encounter, the angel of the Lord found her. And, and four times in this passage, the term the angel of the Lord is used. 
um, the angel of the Lord in verse 7, the angel of the Lord beginning to verse 9, the angel of the Lord beginning to verse 10, the angel of the Lord beginning of verse 11. Four times it is referenced, the angel of the Lord. Who is this figure? Who is this mysterious angel that is being referenced here and is referenced often in the Bible? In fact, many times the angel of the Lord appears. Uh, we see later on in chapter 18, it appear, he appears to Abraham. Uh, the angel of the Lord appears uh, in many occurrences throughout the Bible, to Moses, to Joshua, uh, to uh, um, um, David, um, to Samuel. Uh, uh, and so we see that there is this man. Who is the angel of the Lord? Well, we, we, I want to look at this for a second because there's three possibilities here. Some say it's a very powerful angel, like an archangel who carries the presence of Almighty God. Some have said maybe it's Michael or Gabriel, um, alluding to the fact that the angel of the Lord normally announces the birth uh, uh, of, a, of someone. And so even Gabriel who came to announce the birth of Christ. Um, but that would be pretty hard to see because... While there is some distinction here in terms of the angel of the Lord and God, uh, the very fact is that for the most part, the angel of the Lord is addressed as deity and, and, and speaks as deity. And so the second option then is that some say it is God himself who appears in the form of an angel. And so while no one has ever seen God, God can sometimes appear in different forms. In chapter 15, it was the cauldron and the flaming torch. Um, and, and when he led Israel out into the wilderness, he appeared in the form of a, of a, of a, uh, a, a, a plume of smoke and, 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 and a, a pillar of fire. And so some say maybe this is a theophany, this is a physical manifestation of the presence of God. But the most popular and widely accepted view is it is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And I would be more in favor of that belief. I would be more in favor because while God does reveal Himself in these images of the pillar of smoke and fire uh, or, or the great dark cloud over Sinai, there's a sense of, of hiding God's presence in these big manifestations and glorious manifestations. But the angel of the Lord always appears as a man, as a human, and, and, and speaks in the language that the people in human language. And so what I see here is that, that this is the pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. But still the same. Jesus Christ is God. And so what we do have here is a manifestation of the second person of the Godhead. But the evidence is quite clear that the angel of the Lord is referred to as Yahweh. And he has worshipped his God. And he speaks in the first person of God. Even Hagar in this passage understands her experience is coming face to face with the Lord. She says, it says here in the end that she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly I have seen him who looks at me. Hagar herself understands her experience as having an encounter with the living and true God. So what does this encounter bring about? Well, well, the first thing it brings about is that, is that the Lord reassures Hagar of his love for her and that he cares for her. That's the first thing that happens. He assures her that she is cared for and looked after. And so we read here, um, there's a question, where are you coming from, where are you going? And notice how the angel of the Lord addresses her, the servant of Sarai. Sarai did wrong, but he, God still recognizes that Sarah is the one on whom the covenant blessing is on. She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And look at verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. 
Now, at first, this would seem like, wow, that is hard. That is cold. How could God ask her to go back to the very misery which she was running away from? Well, there's a few reasons to this. One is if you are a young pregnant woman wandering in the desert of Egypt and Canaan at this period in history, whatever abuse she was receiving from Sarah would be nothing compared to what would happen if a group of men found her out there. She would be scooped up, she would be raped, ravished, taken as a slave, and be treated far worse than anything she was experiencing in the tent of Abraham and Sarah. That's the, that's the first reason. God in His grace is actually telling her, go home, you don't know how bad things are. It can get a lot worse. Many times young girls run away from their parents because they think that they're, oh, my parents are so mean, they're so hard, and they run away. And what do they find? That they wind up getting taken in by some pimp who beats the daylights out of them and sells them for sex. It happens all the day, all the time. Read the newspapers, watch the news. Uh, the, the idea of, of sex slavery in the U.S. might seem benign to you, but it's happening every day. Girls who run away are taken hostage by, 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 by vicious, violent pimps who pimp them off for sex and totally destroy their lives. They wish they were home and getting yelled at at their mom and dad at that point. That's the first reason. The second thing is she is carrying the child of Abraham. She is carrying the child of Abraham. And although she was victimized, God had made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, whoever blesses you, I will bless. And whoever dishonors you, I will curse. Her running away with the child of Abraham and even her contempt for Sarah was the equivalent of dishonoring Abraham. And you cannot dishonor Abraham and not have the divine curse on you. It was in her best interest to return home and yield to Sarah. But ultimately, it's because God is calling her to trust Him in all circumstances. There are many times when we... God. God saves you. He redeems you. He reveals Himself to you. You become born again. You get saved. And praise God at the gospel. You know, and you, you, you've been forgiven of your sins. And, and sometimes you're in a situation in your life that you think, well, maybe I can get out of this now and run away. And God wants you right where He has you. God wants to bring you through the crisis and through the trial rather than run away from it. God is teaching Hagar to trust in Him and to have confidence in Him and not in the circumstances that He alone will get her. And He he backs it all up with a promise. Look what He says to her. Verse 10, The angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Oh my! Do you just realize the magnitude of the promise that was given to her? That is on the equal footing of the promise that God gave to Abraham. God said to Abraham, if you can count the stars of the sky, so will be your descendants. And he's telling Hagar essentially the same thing. I am going to multiply beyond numbering your descendants. You realize the the, the gravity of this? God doesn't speak to everybody, number one. Alright? God is only speaking to Abraham as far as we know at this point in the Bible, in in Revelation history. God is talking to this slave woman in the desert and making tremendous promises on her life. 
You don't want to talk about divine favor. We can't grasp how deep this is. Then he goes on to reveal the gender, the name and the character of the child she's carrying. And let me make an aside for a moment. We read this description here of Ishmael. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Ishmael is the direct ancestor of Muhammad, the founder of Islam. But more so between Muhammad and Ishmael, Ishmael is the father of the Arabic people. There are a lot of Arabs in this world. And so although she's not carrying the seed of promise who will bring spiritual blessings into this world, she's carrying the seed that will bring a numerous progeny into this world when the description of Ishmael describes much so of the Islamic world. Wild donkey of a man, which essentially means independent, self-willed, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, enmity, hostility, war. For thousands of years, there's been nothing but war and bloodshed in the Middle East. Nothing new. But back to where we were. Although Hagar's not carrying the promised seed, she is carrying a child of Abraham, and, and she will receive great blessings. Yes, she was a victim in this situation, but God has a plan for her life. She needs to trust Him. You see, before Hagar can receive a blessing, she must return to the path of blessing. She must go back home to Abraham, who is the father of blessings. And so, what does she do? She responds in faith. Verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing, which in Hebrew is El Roy. And she said, Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. He is a God who sees, he is a God who hears. And a God who cares. And she went home and bore a son to Abraham. You know, this is truly amazing. First of all, not only does God reveal himself for the first time to a woman in the Bible, but he gives her a divine promise. And this is, this is the first human being, never mind a woman, to actually give a name to God. This is the first time we see in the Bible where someone gives a name to God. And, and this, this is a sign of a tremendous blessing and favor that God has on this woman. You see, clearly what we see here is a God who is aware of everything, every injustice, every oppression, and He cares for the outcasts and rejected. Hagar was an outcast, a reject. She was treated terribly. And God showed this woman divine favor and how much He cared for her. And she said, you are a God who sees, which means you are a God who cares. In like manner, God shows tremendous grace to Abraham and Sarah. I mean, if you look at the level of their sin, and yet God and His God remains committed to His covenant with them, reminding us that no matter how bad we sin, we can't break the covenant that God has made with us in His love through Jesus Christ. Well, the main lesson here is that God sees all and He's a righteous judge. Let me make three closing points. One, God sees the evildoer. There are times that criminals get away 
We wonder who the mysterious pedophile is who ruined Amanda Todd's life. And the authorities may never find him. And he may never come to justice. But there is a divine seat of justice which he will meet one day and give an account for what happened to that young girl in Canada. There is a divine seat which every human being will get caught one day. No one is escaping the all-seeing eye of God. There is no evil under this sun that goes unaccounted for by God. God sees all and He knows all. And every injustice, every oppression, every mistreatment, every abuse, every wicked thing that goes on in this world, God is keeping a very accurate record in heaven. And on Judgment Day, when we stand before God, we will not be able to lie about it. No one will be able to make up stories. No one will have a lawyer who will give a good defense. Because God will have all the facts and evidence in His courtroom. And there will be no disputing the evidence. God sees all and He knows all. He knows every murderer, every pedophile, every liar, every thief, every cheat. He knows them and He will deal with them. And it's because of that We can trust God and even under terrible circumstances suffer trusting that God will deal with everyone. The Bible says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves for know that I, the Lord, will take vengeance. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Because there are some of you here who may be suffering. There are some of you who may be the victim of oppression. There may be some of you who may be uh, uh, abuse, and you want you want to strike out, you want to act out, you want to do something about it. But I encourage you, trust in God. Look with me in First Peter two verse eighteen. It says here, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Notice that. It it is a gracious thing. God looks with honor when someone endures suffering and sorrows. Look at verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you. This is, we've been called to this, brothers and sisters. We're going to be abused. We're going to be mocked. We're going to be mistreated. It says in verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. And when He was reviled, He did not revile return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. But He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. You see, the example and model the Apostle is giving to those in the Roman world who were slaves and didn't have a good standing in life. He said, listen, don't rebel against your masters. God's in heaven. He sees all. And just like Jesus was mistreated and was suffered and was beaten and He was innocent, it was a gracious thing. But Jesus trusted in Him who is a just judge. And whatever situation you are in in life today... God is calling you to trust in Him because He is a just and equitable judge. And He will render justice to everyone according to His divine wisdom. You need not avenge yourselves. Secondly, God sees, hears, and cares for the oppressed and rejected. The outcasts. This is put on for us no clearly than in the life of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came to this world, He did not go run up into the Sanhedrin, get a position with the Pharisees, and rub elbows with the religious elite. 
He wasn't one to hang out in the synagogue all the time, talking theology with all the Pharisees and Sadducees and, 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 and having his head buried in a book. No, Jesus was out there with the common people, with the vulgar people. I say vulgar in a sense of, uh, of, of meaning common. He was there. That's how the Pharisees concerned, the vulgar people. And he was out there with who? The prostitutes. The tax collectors, the lepers, he would heal the lepers, heal the blind, the, the, the cripples, all the outcasts, all the rejects of society. Those were the people Jesus went to. Isn't that remarkable? It says in Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried us our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He identified. He identified with those who were grief-stricken. He identified with those who were afflicted. And he became afflicted as well. God sees and cares for the suffering. God cares for and, su- and, and loves the oppressed. God cares for and loves the outcast. How do we act? Do we only seek to rub elbows and hang out with those who are cool and who look nice and dress nice and who talk nice and have money? And, or do we, do we make a deliberate effort to relate to the outcasts and rejects in our society? What about that person at your job that nobody likes? Do you chime in? Are you one of those people like, like in the school of Amanda Todd who chimed in and made fun of her when she was on her way to commit suicide? It's amazing. Not one kid in that school could come along that girl and put their arm around her and say, God loves you and I love you and I'll stand with you. What kind of world are we living in today? It says in Matthew 24 that in the end of days the love of many will grow cold. We're living in an unsympathetic and unempathetic generation, but we, the people of God, need to be much different. We don't follow Abraham and Sarah's example in this case. We follow the example of Jesus. Jesus' ministry was very clear-cut. He comforted the afflicted, and He afflicted the comfortable. And that should be our goal. And that should be how we conduct our ministry. And lastly... God sees us. While we may believe that we conceal ourselves from others, we cannot conceal ourselves from God. God sees everything. It might be a very comforting and a very uh, uh, um, uh, happy revelation to know that God sees the evildoers and that God cares for the afflicted. But there's also another implication here is that God sees you. And that may not be comforting, that might be frightening. Because God sees everything you do when no one else does. God sees you when you're alone. God sees the things you do in private. God hears the evil words uttered out of your mouth. God knows the wicked thoughts in your mind. And that enough and alone is enough to condemn you to hell forever. It says here in Luke chapter 12, verse 2 to 3, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden or will be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be said, heard in the light, and whatever you whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. It is a frightening prospect. But brothers and sisters, this is all the more reason to drive you to Jesus Christ. This is all the more reason to drive you to the gospel. 
Yes, there is nothing hidden that you have done in life. God knows every evil thought, every wicked deed. It is all clearly laid out before Him. And that's why there is a great urgency that if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you have not repented and surrendered your life to Him and come openly to the cross and have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior and have repented and turned from your sin and believed in Him, then you will bear the judgment of God on Judgment Day. Everything you've said and done will be revealed against you as evidence of God's just judgment against you. But for those of us who are in Christ, Christ has borne our iniquities. He has borne our judgment. And He has satisfied the wrath of God. And so we can be comfortable in a sense knowing that we can't do anything to strip away God's promise and blessing towards us like Abraham and Sarah. But at the same time, we need to be very aware that God does see everything. And while you may not suffer eternal judgment for the things you say and do, there is temporary judgments. God knows how to discipline His children. And if you say things and do things that are wrong, you will reap the consequences. Sarah and Abraham would reap it for many years having to deal with division in their home. David would deal with many consequences for the way he abused and mistreated Uriah and Bathsheba. And so will you. If you are, own a business and you mistreat or don't pay fairly your employees, God sees it. He'll, he knows how to deal with you. If you're an employee who steals and doesn't do your job right, God sees it. He'll deal with you. Husbands, do you abuse and take advantage and mistreat your wives? God sees it. You'll reap what you sow. Wives, are you disrespectful and abusive to your husbands? God sees it. You'll reap what you sow. Parents, are you harsh with your children? Do you, are you abusive and unkind to them? God sees it. You will reap what you sow. Children, are you disrespectful to your parents? You know when your parents say to you, Oh, when you get old one day, you'll have a kid just like you. What they're telling you is, you will reap what you sow. You cannot avoid the divine principle of reaping and sowing. But I pray that most of you and all of you would never have to reap the eternal consequences of your sin. I pray that all of you will trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and that you will find your guilt completely removed forever and ever. And although we may suffer in this world temporarily for our bad decisions, we could rejoice that one day all of our bad decisions will be reversed and all the years that the worm and the locust have eaten will be restored. And one day all the bad things we've done will be forgotten, erased from history, and we will live eternally with God forever and ever, justified in His presence. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.